sunshine. Incredible as they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. I only... You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. Well, do you want to crack out the whiskey? My friend should be here soon. She's got a place over on the other side of the inlet, and we meet here pretty often. Yeah, it's pretty out of the way, but you don't get much chance to be on your own with nature on a lake with a bunch of cottages and motorboats, do you? No, no thanks. None for me. I've got another one of those headaches. The story? Well, I guess we have a bit of time to kill before she gets here. Now where to start? Well, you know those uh, experimental learning outdoor education programs? Outward bound, forced school, that sort of thing. Well, there used to be one. It went out of business a number of years ago. It was called Sycamore Journeys, sort of an off-brand outward bound, and it took troubled kids out on canoe trips in northern Ontario and Quebec. Yeah, I always thought the name was dumb too. I guess all the good ones were taken. Anyway, when I was in high school, I went through sort of a rough patch. I drank too much and spent basically an entire year high. I started messing around with harder stuff and I got in trouble with the police a couple of times too. Well, the guidance counselor at my school had some connection with someone at Sycamore Journeys and he got me in so that I wouldn't have to repeat a year. The trip was 18 days of whitewater canoeing, 250 kilometers, something like that. And they searched all your bags when you got to base camp. No alcohol, no drugs, no cigarettes. I don't even think they wanted you drinking coffee. Needless to say, I didn't have the best time. The first week, I had horrible alcohol withdrawal, horrible nicotine withdrawal, and I was being forced to paddle 20 kilometers a day in the heat, and that's when we didn't have to portage. I think I barely talked to anyone, and it's hard not to talk to people when you're stuck with them in a canoe for 10 hours at a time. No, no, this was before all the headaches started. Sure, I had headaches from the withdrawal, but not the chronic ones I get now. Anyway, I don't think I'd ever been so far from, well, anything. It was just trees and lakes and chunks of rock for further than you could walk without dying of starvation in every single direction. The first week, I'd lie awake every night, damp and cold, too uncomfortable to sleep, even though I was exhausted, and I'd just think about all that space. All that endless space in every direction filled with nothing. Nothing that could think or feel, anyway. Just dumb animals and huge insects and trees and quiet. It was the quiet that got me the most. It was like the woods were just waiting, and waiting. Waiting for what? Well, by the end of the first week and a half, I started to pull myself together a bit. And I was less of a wimp when it came to, well, everything. And I was starting to feel a little bit like a capable kind of person. And that was good, because we were almost at Solo. Solo is this common outdoor education thing where, about halfway through the trip, they leave you on your own in the woods for two days with a tarp and some twine and a little bag of food. 
It's meant to be a time for you to come to grips with yourself, that sort of thing. And at Sycamore, how it worked was, they'd bring you to a lake and drop everybody off around the shore, or on little islands on a lake, and they'd canoe around the lake once a day to make sure everyone was doing okay. And they gave everybody a whistle, so that if something went wrong, you could blow your whistle, and the person at the next site would hear it and start blowing their whistle, and then the next one, and then the group of leaders could just follow the chain of whistles to the person who needed help. But before they took everyone out, they'd ask people, and in private, how comfortable they were with being on their own. At this point, I'm feeling confident in myself, and I don't want anything to do with any of the other people on the trip. So I tell the trip leaders, Jackson and Kimberly, I'm very comfortable. As a result, the next day I'm the last one to get dropped off, and they drop me off at the far end of the lake, at the bottom of this big hill of boulders that punches up through the trees like a fist. And as I'm standing there on the lakeshore watching Jackson and Kimberly paddle away, I start to completely panic. As it turns out, much as I didn't care for people, I didn't like being without them either. The moment they were gone, it was just me, left alone with the quiet, and the trees, and the rock, and the thousands miles of mindless wilderness, and I almost completely lost it. That kind of situation, no people, no books, or games, or TV, or anything, nowhere to go, nothing to do, it presses you up against the glass. You're forced to look at the nothingness on the other side. At the time, I couldn't face that. I screamed and shouted. I found a stick and I used it to smash the branches off of all the other trees, and I did everything you could to make noise. But you can't make noise forever, and when you stop, you find the quiet there waiting for you, and you find that it was content to have waited. All that noise you made, it didn't make any difference to the quiet, because the quiet is eternal, and any amount of noise, the whole noise of the whole human species for the whole of its history, isn't even a momentary inconvenience for that quiet because the quiet is beyond time. I realized my experience in that section of dry woods, that meaningless, purposeless, ugly and sterile little place, that was the whole entire world in miniature. Everything else, all the industry, the thought, religion, love, everything, was just beating sticks against the trees to drown out the silence. <laughs> yeah, I know. Real angsty teenager shit, right? Well, even for a teenager, it's hard to keep up that level of abjection. So after about an hour or so, I'd settled down. I was still in a bleak kind of mood, but at least I wasn't in full-on crisis. I set up my little tarp and my sleeping bag, and I put my little satchel of food high up in a tree so that, presumably, bears wouldn't be able to get to it. And then I set out and began to explore a bit. There wasn't much to explore. I was on a little peninsula that jutted out into the lake, separated from the mainland by a swampy inlet. Behind my camp was the big rock outcropping, and the rest of my tiny kingdom was just dry trees. The trip leaders hadn't wanted us climbing anything, for the sake of our safety and their liability, but I climbed up to the top of the tree of the outcropping anyway, because it was better than doing nothing. From up at that top, I could get a better view across the swamp, and I could see a little clearing out there, with a bit of bright red moving around. Another solo site, and a girl from the trip who I didn't really care for, bustling around in it. She was close enough that she probably heard my freak out from earlier. Close enough that, if we'd wanted to, we probably could have swum across to one another. I looked across the lake, and I was just able to see the edge of an island where I knew another person from our trip had been dropped off. When I looked back over at the other side of the bog, the girl in red was waving at me. I turned around and started to climb back down. As I was searching for handholds, I almost fell 20 feet when my fingers landed in something wet and sticky. I barely managed to catch hold of a dry root, and I saw that my hand was smeared with cold, congealed blood. 
A dead bird was sprawled out on a little jut of stone I tried to use as a handhold. I spent 20 minutes by the lake trying to scrub the bird blood and brains out from under my fingernails, and shortly afterward it started to rain. By evening it was pissing down. While I could, I sat under my tarp, facing the lake and watching the gray sky darken. But by about 9 o'clock, the last of the light was gone, and there was nothing to do but try and sleep. The tarp had a leak, though. And as I tried to fall asleep, a tiny drip of water kept tap, tap, tapping me on the forehead. When I switched to lie the other way, there was a big drip there too. It must have taken me hours to fall asleep, thrashing in my cold, damp sleeping bag, while up above, no stars came out. I woke up some time later. It must have been the middle of the night, because the darkness was complete. And something was wrong. I knew immediately that I wasn't alone. I couldn't hear anything, except for the sound of the woods dripping, and it was so dark I couldn't even see my hands in front of me. I could tell, though, with some sense that doesn't have a name, that I was not alone. I asked who was there, but there was no answer. I forced myself to be brave, and I climbed to my feet and clenched my fists. I know you're there, I shouted. Who are you and what do you want? And that's when I realized I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't under my tarp, and the ground under my feet was stone instead of soil, and the sound I was hearing couldn't have been the woods dripping, because I wasn't in the woods. I was up on that clenched fist rock, and then I heard a sound wafting up from the trees below. It sounded like a giggle. Seconds after I started blowing my whistle, the girl on the other side of the inlet took up the cry, then the boy on the island, then the next camper, and the next one, until the sound of whistles rolled across all the silent surface of the lake. One by one, they died away, until I heard the sound of a canoe pulling up on shore, and Jackson and Kimberly calling my name. They found me at the top of the outcropping, cross-legged, with my arms wrapped around myself. Both had dark circles under their eyes, and even though they'd always stood close to one another during the trip, they were standing at a distance with their arms folded. They asked me what happened, and I told them. Well, most of it. I didn't say that I'd woken up there, because I didn't want them thinking I was crazy. I told them about the presence, though, and I let them think that I'd gone up on top of the outcropping because I was afraid. They looked at one another, and Jackson came up to sit beside me. Did you actually see anyone? Hear anyone? No, I said, you know, except that I sounded younger. I thought I... No, no, I didn't. Look, sometimes it's easy for your imagination to play tricks on you out here. Now... Kimberly and I have searched through the woods, and there isn't any sign of anyone else here. And I think the most likely explanation for all this is that you had a bad dream, and then scared yourself by thinking about it too much. If you don't want to stay, though, then you can come back with us. Brave man. He gave me a smile that didn't really reach his eyes. And he stood up to go, and he swung his flashlight around to light the way back to the canoe. Oh, well, there you go. That must have been what you were hearing. I think it's a pine marten, freshly dead by the looks of it. Must have happened just before you came up here. That's probably what woke you up. What happened to it? Looks like it fell and hit its head on one of these rocks. Well, he just picked up the body by the tail and he threw it back into the woods below. And then they were on their way. I felt uneasy. I was sitting in the same place when they came to check on me the next afternoon. I hadn't noticed their canoe on the lake, and I hadn't heard them calling me. 
Hadn't had any idea they were there at all until Jackson had his hands on my shoulder. I'd been fooling around with this fist-sized chunk of dark rock, pitted on one side. The whole morning I'd been obsessed with it, turning it over and over in my hands, staring into the cracks and crannies. But something about its shape, like a flattened snout, wouldn't let me go. Well, he startled me, but not too bad. He asked me if I was alright. He had the grimy, dusty look of someone who'd barely slept. He asked me how the rest of the night was. I said it was okay. I'd gotten back to sleep. He cracked some kind of joke about how that made one of us. And then he got a bit more serious, and he asked me if I was going to be okay tonight. And I said, yeah. After they left, this beetle crawled across the rock between my legs. I don't know why, but I hefted the rock, and I crushed the front half of its body flat, and I left the thorax and abdomen to twitch themselves still. That night, it was the sound of dripping that woke me up again. First I thought it must have rained again, but my arm had fallen out of the tarp and when I planted my hand to push myself upright, the soil underneath me was dry, and I knew again that I wasn't alone. Again, it was completely dark, dark enough that I couldn't see my nose if I crossed my eyes. Ahead of me though, just beyond the end of the tarp, I thought I could make out an area of even deeper dark in the darkness. I was completely still, and my heart was throbbing in my throat. In all of those woods, all that little island, nothing made a sound, except for the dripping. Drip. 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 My mouth was completely dry. I licked my lips. The shadow seemed to lean closer, and the drip grew nearer. I asked who was there in a feeble little kid voice, and without warning I was dragged from under my tarp by an iron grip around my ankle. I screamed and I dug my fingers into the soil, but the pull was too strong and my fingernails tore as they were yanked across the tree roots and buried pebbles. I couldn't see what or who it was that had me in the darkness of the trees, but I was being hauled uphill, toward the clenched fist of stone. As we burst through the tree line, a cloud slipped from the face of the moon, and I saw a silhouette, silhouette of a girl, around my age at the time, small and slim with hair that shone watery in the moonlight. She was holding my ankle with just one hand, and yet still she was dragging me with mechanical strength. I asked who she was, and she stopped. She let my foot fall to the ground and stood with her hands by her side. Slowly she turned to face me. Well, I say face. As she made her slow little pirouette, the first thing I noticed was a beautiful smile. White, even teeth that gleamed like pearls in the light of the moon. But there was something... off about it. The teeth, they were all slightly too far apart. But no, that wasn't right. They were normal. It was that, in the gloom, the fluid running between them seemed almost as dark as the empty space. Black in the pale blue light, the girl's teeth ran with streams of syrupy blood. Between her teeth and over the lips and chin, bubbled down to drip, drip on the loam below. It was obvious where the blood was coming from because above that smile, that perfect smile, where eyes and a nose should have been, there were no features but a crunched crescent of sickening red pulp. In her offhand, the one free when the other was dragging me, the girl was holding a rock, my rock from that afternoon, the one that had fit the palm of my hand like it was meant to be there. It gleamed purple in the half-darkness. It was soaked with gore. 
The girl smiled wider and wider at me, and she raised the rock above her head and it blotted out the moon. But then, from across the swamp, rose the single clear peal of a whistle. And in a matter of seconds it was joined by a dozen others rising and falling between the trees. The girl took a half-step back from me, and her geometric teeth parted in surprise. But then she stepped forward again, and with a pretty sound she began to laugh out of that wreck of a face. A rope of fluid fell from her chin to splatter against the ground. She bent over me, letting the rock slip from her fingers. She was close enough that I could smell her now, and her face stank of fresh blood. Then, for a long, horrid moment, she held me down and kissed me. A deep, probing, sexual kiss. When she finally stood again, I rolled over and threw up, overwhelmed by the reek and flavor of human gore. When I looked up, she was gone, vanished into the blue night air. I washed my face and hands in the lake as quick as I could, and when the trip leaders came, I said nothing and climbed into their canoe. What happened next? Well, I tried to keep quiet, but in the end, someone managed to wheedle a bit of the story out of me. It got around the group that I thought I'd seen a ghost, and if people hadn't thought I was crazy before, they did after that. A strange thing happened after we got back to base camp. A woman who I didn't know came to our group before we got back on the bus to the city and asked to speak with me. She was the company's accountant, but she'd started out her career as a trip leader. For whatever reason, when she asked me, I told her the whole story. And right after that, pale as dust, she told me a story about a trip a number of years before where a girl had died on her solo on that exact lake. An accident, everyone had always said. She fell off an outcropping of rock and hit her head. Sarah. Her name was Sarah. But there had been a boy on the same trip, just on the other side of the inlet, just within swimming distance, who the year before had crushed the head of a neighbor's cat with a rock. Of course, he didn't hear anything when she fell. It was an interesting story, but after everything I'd been through, I wanted nothing more than to forget all about it. And for about a year there, I did. I pulled my life around, graduated high school, managed to get into a crappy university. Looked like I was going to have a normal life. Until, exactly one year later, on that anniversary, when I woke up in the middle of the night with a splitting headache. Right here. In the middle of my forehead. And the year after that, on the same night, the same headache in the same place. Then after a couple of years, it wasn't just on the anniversary anymore. The headache spilled out over two or three days. And a few months after that, I started to get them randomly, day and night, throughout the year. I've been to doctors, I've had scans. They say there's nothing that should be causing me these headaches. I've been to psychiatrists, I've been on medication, but do you know what? The pills don't work. None of them work. Alcohol doesn't work. When I've got the headache, not even morphine takes away the pain. Last week... I woke up to find blood running in between my teeth, and a bruise across my entire forehead. I knew the anniversary was coming up, and I knew that I couldn't take this anymore. It's obvious that it's her, and it's obvious what she wants. But you know what? I don't think it has to be me. Well, would you look at that? I've finished my story just in time. Turn around. I'd like to introduce you to someone. This is my friend, Sarah.
The Wrong Station is created and produced by Alexander Saxton and Anthony Botello. Featuring Anthony Botello. With music composed by Alon Zittrin and original artwork by Jenny Henderson. This week's episode, Outward Bound, was written by Alexander Saxton. Jackson was played by Eric Sinat. Tune in every Thursday for full-length episodes. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and now subscribe on iTunes and Google Play Music. As always, you can email us at therongstation at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.